0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And in my last episode, I covered the founding of Cisco Systems, a company associated primarily with routers and switches and other computer network hardware. Today, I'm going to look more at where the company went after the co founders left the company, and also talk a bit about some of the technologies that the company got involved in. Now, the early years of Cisco focused on just a few products, from network boards that could allow computers to interface with larger networks, to the routers that could actually facilitate communication between networks. In the mid to late 1980s, this was cutting-edge technology. Computer networks were just beginning to expand beyond tech companies and universities and start to enter into other industries. And demand was growing around the world, not just in the United States. By 1990, when the co-founders Len Bozak and Sandy Lerner, then husband and wife, left Cisco, the company was generating an annual revenue of $69 million and had 251 employees. It had obviously grown quite a bit since its launch as a business out of the founder's living room, and obviously it was no longer operating out of their living room. They had an office in Menlo Park at the time. The company had also gone public with stocks trading on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, And in 1991, Cisco Systems, under the guidance of John Morgridge, the new president and CEO who had been put in place by the uh, investment firm Sequoia Capital, he had been there since 1988, he opened up their first international office in the UK. Uh, The company also had its first stock split in 1991, just one year after it got listed on the stock exchange. So here's a quick refresher. What the heck is a stock split? What does that mean? So a company issues a certain number of shares, and this represents a percentage of ownership in the company, right? If you buy shares in a company, you own a part of that company. The number of shares determines how much of that company you own. So if a company puts out a whole lot of shares and you buy only one, you have a very tiny percentage of ownership in that company. The shares are worth a certain amount each, right? That's what we see when we say the stock is... $20. That tells you how much a a single share of stock in that company costs. Uh, That amount is determined by lots of different factors, uh, especially when you are first launching a company. Like, how do you determine how much you're going to charge for a share of stock in your company if you have not yet launched an uh, initial public offering? Well, get lots of different factors that figure that out, including uh, underwriters who judge what the value of the company should be. For simplicity's sake, let's take a very easy example, one that would never really happen, but just to be able to talk about this. So let's say I am launching a company and I've determined that my company is worth about $1,000, you know, a princely sum. I decide I'm going to go public with this very prestigious company and my underwriters decide that the 100 shares I plan to create will cost $10 each. They agree, my company is worth $1,000. So uh, 1% of my company will cost you 10 bucks, right? Because I have 100 shares, $10 a share. That means that, uh, you know, that's all you're gonna get is uh, just those 100 shares. Um, And that's the whole value of the company. So I keep 51 of those shares because I'm no dummy. I want to have controlling interest in my own company. And the other 49 shares hit the market at $10 each. Then the market decides whether or not those shares are actually worth the $10 and people either buy them or they don't. Now let's flash forward a year. Let's say that the stock price has gone way up. Now it's $100 per share. It started out at $10 per share on the IPO. A year later, they are valued at $100 per share. There's still 100 shares out there. But that means my $1,000 company is now worth $10,000, right? I take that same number of shares that exist, that's 100, times the price, $100. This gives me the market capitalization of the company. Now, it's awesome that my company has increased in value like this, but I would kind of like to see more trading happen in the market, more liquidity, right? I want to see people actually buying and selling these shares more frequently, And at $100 per share, small investors might feel pushed out. They feel like that's too expensive to buy any shares really worthwhile. So my board decides that we're going to do a stock split. We're going to do a two-for-one stock split. That means for every outstanding share of stock, I will create another share and issue it to the people who are holding those shares. So if you are currently holding two shares in my company, you would now hold four shares in my company. However, I can't just magically double the value of my company, right? I can't sit there and say, well, I had 100 shares at $100. Now I've got 200 shares at $100. That doesn't work that way. So all shareholders would see the number of shares double, but the value per share would be cut in half. So instead of having two shares worth $100 each, you would now have four shares worth $50 each. But the lower cost per share might mean greater liquidity and trading. That might encourage smaller investors to get involved. And that can sometimes help a company grow even more. Companies like Cisco have had numerous stock splits. And I'll talk more about the result of that at the end of this episode. I just wanted to mention that it was impressive that a company would hold a split only a year after getting listed on the stock exchange. When Cisco Systems first went public, It had the market capitalization of $224 million. So in other words, you took all the shares of Cisco that existed, you multiplied it by the price per share, you get up $224 million. That's how much the market cap is for Cisco when it launches. In 1991, just a year later, that market cap was already $1 billion, In 92, Cisco was awarded its first patent, which was originally filed back in 1988, because patent applications can take a while. The Patent Office takes a while to review a patent and then uh, issue a patent. It was U.S. patent number 5,088,032. That patent was for a technology called the Interior Gateway Routing Protocol, or IGRP. That was a set of rules that routers would follow for efficient communications within a computer network. Peeking ahead for a moment, in the summer of 2013, Cisco would celebrate getting its 10,000th U.S. patent. But to be clear, Cisco also grew quite a bit through acquisitions. Uh, Primarily, Cisco grew by acquiring other companies. So I imagine many of those patents were part of acquisitions and not just patents that were filed by Cisco R&D. Cisco also opened offices in Canada and Japan in 1992 and hit revenues of $381 million and grew to 875 employees. Now, from this point forward, I'm only going to mention revenues and employee counts when it's particularly notable since a lot of Cisco's history is all about it got bigger that year. And that gets really old really fast. So I'm not going to do that for every single year. In 93, Cisco Systems made its first acquisition. It was a company called Crescendo Communications. And Crescendo was working on network switching technologies, particularly for local area networks. The acquisition cost nearly $95 million. And again, if I were to list every single company Cisco Systems purchased from that time... Up to present day, it would probably take about 20 minutes to do. Most of them were companies that focused on technologies relating to networks, so within Cisco's wheelhouse. They were largely companies that made routers or switches or modems or firewalls. Uh, others, however, were in related fields like computer security. There was even a couple of companies that were related to internet television back when everyone was convinced that was right around the corner when in reality it would take you know, a decade or two after that acquisition for any sort of internet TV to kind of take off. And even then it was in a totally different uh, implementation than what people had imagined back in the 90s. Cisco would also acquire companies in the mobile space, also in surveillance, in voice over internet protocol, in digital cable, and more, even in consumer electronics. More recently, the company has invested heavily in cloud computing infrastructure. So, in all, Cisco has spent around $70 billion in acquisitions, and most of the products Cisco offers comes out of those acquisitions. So you could say a lot of Cisco's growth came from buying out other companies and adding to their own offerings that way. John Mortgage and his successor, John Chambers, both used acquisitions as a means for growth. According to a 2002 Business Week article, acquisitions accounted for about 50 percent of all Cisco's businesses. Cisco's uh, moves also meant that it maintained a dominant position in business-to-business enterprise, and it focused on network technology. It was the dominant player in that space. If you planned to build out a computer network, chances are you were relying at least in part on technology from Cisco. This included internet service providers. So we started seeing more and more internet service getting rolled out to the United States population. Those network infrastructure pieces had to come from somewhere. Cisco provided a lot of the routers and switches that would be used by internet service providers in their various networks. So it was a lucrative source of revenue for the company. Now, to be clear, the acquisitions were likely necessary to some extent. Cisco had built much of its business early on on multi-protocol routers. If you listened to my last episode, you know what I mean by that. Those are the routers that can communicate between different networks that are operating on incompatible communications protocols. But by the 90s, a lot of that was changing. Most networks were starting to rely upon internet protocol as the standard in communications. So you weren't seeing as much proprietary approaches, everyone was kind of leaning towards internet protocol because that was clearly going to become a dominant means of communication through computer systems. And that made multi-protocol routers less important because really only legacy systems were dependent upon them. Newer systems were adopting internet protocol, so you didn't need something that was multi-protocol. It's like you don't need a translator if everybody in the room speaks the same common language. So without diversifying, Cisco could have been in danger of becoming obsolete. So these acquisitions were actually not a bad thing. Uh, But there is this sort of view among certain people that a company growing by acquiring other companies is kind of sort of cheating. It's like the pay-to-win philosophy in games, uh, according to some people. Sometimes I feel that way. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I look at a company that makes most of its growth through acquisitions, and I think, ah... Really? But it's a smart business move. It makes sense. And for Cisco, it paid off in huge dividends for at least uh, the near term. Now back to the history of the company. While it gobbled up other companies, Cisco also opened up more operations around the world like Hong Kong, Mexico, and Belgium. And it would continue to open up offices all across the world. By 1994, the company hit revenues of more than a billion dollars for the first time in its history. And they also moved offices from Menlo Park to San Jose, California. And a year later, the company posted a revenue of $2.23 billion. So they go from a billion to $2.23 billion. They double their revenue in a year. And it was like the company had a license to print money. But remember, this is also a time when people in general were first becoming aware of the internet as a thing early 90s, that's when your average person starts to hear about internet. Before then, you pretty much had to be a college student or you had to work in the field to know what the heck the internet was. Most people before the early 90s had no inkling. And it was around this time where people were saying like, what does the at symbol in an email mean? What is this World Wide Web? What is this information superhighway? This was a boom time for network technology. 1995 was also when John Chambers would become the new CEO of Cisco, and John Morgridge would transition to the role of chairman of the board. I'll talk more about Chambers in just a moment, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. John Chambers had earned a Master's of Business Administration, uh, from Indiana University. He had worked for IBM in their sales department in the late 70s and early 1980s, and then went on to work for Wang Laboratories, makers of the Wang Computer, or Wong, if you wanna use the pr- correct pronunciation, I would say. Uh, this was in the late 80s. This was a computer company that one time was extremely successful. A lot of people haven't really heard about Wong or Wang computers these days uh, because they were, again, sort of a business-to-business company. But by the time Chambers left the company in 1990, Wong was already on a a downward spiral, and it would eventually declare bankruptcy. It would emerge from bankruptcy. It would then get acquired, and ultimately it would end up dissolving after a couple more acquisitions. Maybe someday I'll do a full episode to talk about the history of that company. Anyway, by that time, John Chambers was already part of Cisco. He had joined that team officially in 1991, and he would serve as the Cisco CEO for two decades. He would stay on as CEO until July 27, 2015. And a lot happened in those two decades. So, Chambers serves as the new CEO of Cisco, and it's business as usual, meaning the company is continuing to grow and acquire other companies. This was a time when people began to get incredibly excited about the potential of the internet, the mid to late 90s. Startups were beginning to bloom in the mid 90s, but that would really build to a fever pitch by the end of the 90s. It got crazy. The information superhighway was being hailed as the next frontier. It was where people were going to make their fortune. It was a land grab of massive scale. It was where we were all going to live and we were going to have experiences in virtual environments that would let us work and shop and play and experience life in a way we just could not imagine before the internet. Or at least that's how it was all sold to us. No one was really sure how it was actually going to shake out, but they were all sure that it would lead to this amazing virtual future. And Cisco, a company that continued to supply the technology that made internet communication possible, was profiting from this excitement in a very real way. More companies were building up networks. That meant they needed the equipment that Cisco produced in order to do that. Uh, They were going to Cisco primarily because it was the biggest name out there. It was the dominant manufacturer of various network components like routers and switches. So if you needed to build out your network, chances are you were going with Cisco hardware. They needed to establish safe networks that had an air gap between the network and the internet. So they would go with the best, biggest name in the industry. They needed the hardware that Cisco was known for, and the company was doing business Like gangbusters. In 1997, Fortune magazine would list Cisco among the Fortune 500 companies, listed at number 332. But in just a couple of years, Cisco would become the most valuable company in the world. Tech company, that is. For a short while, anyway. In 1998, Cisco first started offering cable modems for end users. This is one of the few products the company made for home consumers as opposed to enterprises. So they entered the consumer market in a limited way uh, and experimented with this for a little more than a decade. And Cisco would later purchase companies like Linksys in 2003 to increase this offering. Linksys makes routers, home routers, that kind of thing and uh, had existed before Cisco came along. Then Cisco lumps Linksys under its wing. However, Cisco would not hold on to all these consumer-facing companies like Linksys, which Cisco sold to Belkin in 2013, one decade later. In fact, at that time, Cisco pretty much divested itself of all home market products in general. Interesting side note, by the way, Linksys, like Cisco, was founded by a married couple. This would be uh, Janie and Victor Tsao, who founded Linksys, which originally had the name DEW International. And, yes, the original site for that company was, in fact, a garage in California. Because the archetype exists for a reason. 1999 marked Cisco's 15th anniversary. It had hit revenues of $12 billion. It had grown so much through expansions and acquisitions that it now had more than 20,000 employees. And in March 2000, Cisco hit its peak that it has never met since then. Spoiler alert. Cisco's market cap, which when it launched was $224 million, I'll remind you, hit $555.4% billion dollars in March 2000. That meant Cisco had officially displaced Microsoft as the most valuable company in the world. This value was fueled again by the fervor around the internet. Internet service providers were furiously building out their infrastructure and relying heavily on Cisco technologies to do so. The company was in great shape. And then the bubble burst. Now, I've covered the dot-com bubble in other episodes, so I'm just going to kind of give a quick summary of what happened here. In the late 90s and into 2000, even into 2001 to some extent, there was an almost unreal amount of investment pouring into internet ventures. Now, some of those ventures would prove to be good ideas that could stand the test of time, like Amazon that was able to survive the dot-com bubble burst. Others were decent ideas, but the people behind them were unable to execute those ideas the way they had envisioned, so they weren't able to make any money off of this cool idea. And it might be that once the bubble did burst, a few years later someone else came along with a similar idea and they were able to make it work. But at the time, it just didn't. Some of the ideas were just plain bad, but... Around this time in the late 90s, the general feeling was if you did not get in on this internet craze, if you did not put your money there, you were going to miss out on an incredible investment opportunity. Venture capitalists were blasting companies with huge investments. I mean, it was almost like people were throwing money at these startup companies. They were finding themselves flush with cash. Some of them were finding themselves in possession of way more money than was necessary for them to actually do what it was they said they wanted to do. And lots of startup entrepreneurs went more than a little bonkers with all that dough. They started tricking out their offices with lavish furniture and amenities. They'd spent huge amounts on stuff they didn't actually need that wasn't contributing to their business at all. Some of them didn't have a business plan to speak of. They had a cool idea, something that sounded neat, but they didn't have a a strategy of how they were going to even generate revenue, let alone make a profit. And once the initial excitement started to die down, people began to ask hard questions like, how the heck is this company going to pay back the investment I put into it? The market peaked in March of 2000, fueled by rampant speculation, and then the bubble burst. Now, why the bubble burst is complicated, as there were there's more than just investors waking up, right? It wasn't just people got out of bed one day and said, "Hang on," and then and then the balloon just totally pops. That's more simple than what really happened. Uh, a lot of startups had burned through their initial cash and had nothing really to show for it, except pending disaster and the dot-com crash saw several internet startups go under just months after they had made headlines with incredible successful IPOs. These were companies that had failed to generate a profit, or, like I said, in a few cases, they had failed to make any revenue at all. While some of them received enormous amounts of investment money, that cash was spent. And without a steady source of incoming revenue or more investment, those companies couldn't stay afloat, so the market retracted. Cisco was in a different space. It was a big, established company. It wasn't about to go out of business, but it did take an enormous hit from this dot-com bubble burst. Its stock price declined by more than 80% as a result. And the company had been on a rocket to the stratosphere before this. A lot of people were even predicting that Cisco was going to become the first trillion-dollar company. But its market cap ended up going from more than $500 billion to $151 billion in 2001. And it would dip even lower in subsequent years. So it didn't go out of business, but its value was reduced to less than half of what it had been at its peak. By the end of fiscal year 2002, Cisco's stocks were trading at around $12 per share. The change from fiscal year 2001 to 2002 is noticeable if you look at timelines for Cisco, even ones from the company itself, because companies tend to not want to draw attention to really difficult years, and they sometimes will just, they they don't necessarily fudge results, but they might leave details out. But there's an official Cisco timeline that gives you revenue and employee count every year from its founding up to 2013. At the end of fiscal year 2001, the company posted $22.3 billion in revenue, and they had 38,402 employees. One year later, that had gone down from $22.3 billion to $18.9 billion, and there were 3,000 fewer employees around. But still... And you're talking about billions of dollars in revenue. It's not like Cisco was suddenly on the verge of collapse. It just was suffering a pretty big setback. But it was able to keep its footing, and CEO Chambers concentrated on trying to lead his company to reverse this trend and to go back into a period of growth. But it took a few years. Cisco revenues and employee count remained pretty flat from 2002 to 2004, so... First, it was all about stabilizing the company. Then it was trying to grow it again. During that time, Cisco was doing other business. They had uh, gotten into the voice over internet phone protocol system. So they were selling uh, VoIP phones. They had shipped 4 million of those by 2004. It had introduced security solutions in 2005. And it appeared to be on a slow climb back to where it was. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about what Cisco did in the aftermath of the dot-com bubble and what it's doing today. But before I get into that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. 2006 saw a big year of growth for Cisco. The company was really able to get out of that rut it was in. It was also getting into the business of telepresence. That's, you know, the whole video calling business, which in 2006 was still a pretty young science and uh, technology. It wasn't that—it was really novel. Not a lot of people had had made use of it yet. These days, you can have it on your, your smartphone— It was still a dominant player in switches and routers at that time, and it had grown to nearly 52,000 employees. So it looked like it was well on the way to full recovery and it continued to make strategic acquisitions. It also officially dropped systems from its name and simply became known as Cisco. They also launched a campaign called the Human Network. This was an advertising campaign to uh, kind of position the company as one that had a place in the average household. And this was a relatively short-lived attempt for Cisco to make a bigger move into the consumer electronics market space. Ultimately, The company would change gears and again focus on enterprise customers. They would ultimately decide that it was a mistake to get into consumer electronics. Now, one very disturbing story involving Cisco around this time that first started to emerge in the uh, the, around 2008 or so and has continued to be uh, brought up in discussion since then was the company's involvement in supplying technology to China. Now, according to allegations brought against Cisco by various human rights organizations, Cisco was instrumental in providing and customizing technology for China's Golden Shield system. We have also called the Golden Shield system the Great Firewall of China. The Chinese government restricts access to the Internet. So a lot of sites are strictly forbidden. And... The Great Firewall allows the Chinese government to essentially dictate which parts of the internet are, uh, are, are accessible within China and which ones should not be accessible within China. It's a very authoritarian approach to internet access. Now, the allegations state that Cisco provided technology that allowed the Chinese government to identify and pursue individuals that the government had identified as being undesirable people that the government had said are dangerous. That included practitioners of the Falun Gong religion. So according to the allegations, these people were reportedly hunted down, captured, tortured, and in at least one instance, killed. The lawsuits accused Cisco of knowingly providing technology that would be used in those endeavors, saying there's no way the company would not have known that the tech they were designing for the Chinese government was specifically for the purpose of the government identifying, singling out, and pursuing specific individuals within China. The initial lawsuit was dismissed when a judge stated the plaintiffs had failed to provide evidence that Cisco would have known the technology would be put to such use. The plaintiffs appealed with oral arguments happening in April 2017, but then the submission of the case was vacated pending the judgment on a different case that the Supreme Court was hearing. It was called Jesner versus Arab Bank. At issue was whether or not foreign corporations could or could not be defendants in suits brought under the Alien Tort Statute. The Supreme Court found that they could not in a 5-4 to four decision, and as far as I can tell, the matter is at a rest there, that... Uh, that in U.S. courts will not hear the case. That's my understanding. Uh, it may turn out to be different. I am not a legal expert. One of the ways that Cisco tried to target consumers around this time was in the consumer video camera market. In 2009, Cisco acquired Pure Digital Technologies. That's the company that was behind the Flip video cameras. Do you remember those? They're kind of cool. I actually kind of thought they were neat. Uh, Cisco might have timed that kind of poorly, because 2009 was right around the time that the handheld camcorder market was getting pushed aside by smartphones, more of which were including cameras capable of taking video. Cisco stuck with this plan until April 2011, and then it discontinued the flip video cameras because the company was looking, Cisco that is, was looking to extricate itself from the home consumer market entirely. The space was too crowded, with too many competitors, and many of those competitors had been at the game for way longer than Cisco. In fact, even longer than Cisco had existed as a company. So things were pretty rough for Cisco there. By 2011, other companies were also starting to really seriously compete against Cisco in the network infrastructure business. That's the bread and butter of Cisco, at least up to that time. Cisco was still the dominant player, but was no longer commanding nearly all the market the way it had been. As a result, the company's earnings were lower than what they had projected previously. And so Cisco had to look for ways to cut costs. And if you've worked for a big company, you probably anticipate what happened next because one way companies cut costs after a rough financial year is by laying off employees. John Chambers essentially said, I done goofed up. Though really he was more professional than I make it sound. And it wasn't like it was an obvious mistake on the face of it. The problem, as Chambers admitted, was that Cisco had tried to compete in too many markets, many of which had entrenched players like the home consumer market, for example. So the company was fighting a war that had too many fronts. And so Chambers said it was time to simplify Cisco's approach, to narrow its focus. And unfortunately, that also meant cut some jobs in the process because those jobs would no longer be necessary for the company's mission. Chambers wanted to cut expenses by about 6%, but 6% meant $1 billion. Some analysts estimated that could mean the company might eliminate as many as 10,000 jobs, which would be about 14% of its workforce. Others said it was probably going to be closer to 4,000. Now, according to Cisco's own timeline, it looks like the real number was somewhere in between 4,000 and 10,000. At the end of fiscal year 2011, the company had 71,825 employees. At the end of the following year, it was down to 66,639. So assuming some folks were brought on throughout 2012, either through acquisitions or through hires, that would mean around 5,000 people were let go. It wouldn't be the last time Cisco would have to lay off a lot of people. In August 2016, the company announced it would eliminate 5,500 jobs, and the following year, it announced another 1,100 positions would be on the chopping block. Now, that was probably because Cisco has pivoted in recent years. The network infrastructure market has slowed down considerably because eventually, you got enough superhighway laid down, right? You know, internet service providers have built out their infrastructures. They might continue to uh, uh, implement new material into those infrastructures, but there's no longer this land grab. There's no longer this very fast expansion of internet infrastructure. It's not necessary. A lot of, of, uh, of organizations already have the equipment they need. So for the last couple of years, Cisco has had to look at a different source for revenue, Something, some other area of growth. They could still do business with network infrastructure materials, but it's not going to have the year-over-year growth that investors want to see. So the company has switched to concentrate more on software and cloud computing services, as well as the Internet of Things. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that the Internet of Things got its name from Cisco, which was the organization that really recognized when individual Uh, network-connected components were outnumbering the number of people on the planet, saying, well, we now have more devices connected to the internet than there are people in the world. That happened, by the way, around 2008, 2009. One person who left his job was John Chambers, but that was his choice. He didn't get fired. He actually retired as CEO in 2015, as I mentioned earlier. His replacement was Chuck Robbins the current CEO of Cisco. He had worked for Cisco for nearly 20 years. He had previously been the senior vice president of worldwide operations. Now, if you listened to my last episode, you heard me say that a $1,000 investment in Cisco when it first went public would have netted you 55.55 shares, which means they were around $18 per share, which made me wonder how much would they be worth today? So since that time, the company's shares have split multiple times. So you have to take all that into account. Uh, The 55.55 shares from uh, 1990 would be more shares today because they kept splitting. So how many shares would you have today? Probably somewhere around 16,000. That's how many times it splits. Now, keep in mind, a split, typically doubles the number of shares you have. Sometimes it can be more than that depending upon the nature of the split. Uh, At the time I am researching this episode, Cisco shares are priced at about $42.86 per share. So if you do some multiplication, you take your uh, 16,000 and you multiply by that, that would mean your $1,000 investment way back in 1990 would be worth about $685,760 today. But hey, let's, let's be fair. Let's adjust that $1,000 for inflation, right? Because $1,000 in 1990 is worth more than $1,000 in 2018 money. So in today's cash, it would be worth about $1,977.94. $1, so let's just round it up to $2,000. So a $2,000 investment in today's buying power back in 1990 would net you more than half a million dollars. That's after Cisco's struggles during the dot-com crash and the 2011 crisis. So that's not bad, though the company is still a far cry from its peak value of $500 billion. In fact, uh, as of the day I'm researching this, the company has a market capitalization of $199.93 billion. Still really impressive, but that's less than half of what it was at its peak, even before you adjust for inflation. Now, I've got another question for you. What if you had made that $1,000 investment back in 1990, but then, you know, just at the very peak of Cisco's value, you sold off all of your your stocks? Let's say you you just get this feeling in your bones. You're like, hmm, this this is about to take a downward turn, so I'm going to get rid of all my stock right now. Well, if you had done that, if you had taken that 55.55 shares of stock, that you bought for $1,000 back in 1990 and you sold it at its peak, you would have netted $1,264,000. More than a million dollars on a $1,000 investment. That would be pretty darn sweet. But that's hindsight. And hindsight is always 20-20. At the time, you would not have known. Maybe you would have thought, nope, it's on its way to a trillion dollar company. I'm holding on to these stocks, yes sir. Now, ultimately, the story of Cisco is a complicated one. It's a company that was founded on a collaborative effort that left a few of the collaborators upset at how their work was leveraged for commercial products. The technology from Cisco and the companies it acquired has made it possible for countless other businesses and organizations to adapt to the requirements of the 21st century. And while Cisco was blasted by the dot-com bubble bursting, it's not like it was responsible for that mess. The company was investing billions of dollars in acquisitions, which likely helped fuel some of the speculation around the dot-com bubble, but it wasn't engaged in the same sort of shenanigans that ultimately led to the bubble collapsing. They were more of a victim of that than someone that was perpetrating the mess that caused it. So I'm not trying to lay blame at Cisco for the dot-com bubble. Far from it. Well, that wraps up these two episodes about Cisco, where it came from, what it does, and where it's headed. Uh, It's very much in the cloud computing space and and software as a service space these days. So very different from building network cards and routers way back in 1984. And of course, the co-founders haven't had anything to do with the company since 1990. So it's a very different company than what Uh, was formed out of a living room in San Jose back in the early 80s. Interesting story, lots of controversy there. I am curious to read more about uh, a lot of the stories here and maybe someday do another update. But for now, let's close the book on Cisco. If any of you have suggestions like Gage did for any topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, maybe it's a person in tech, maybe it's a specific technology Maybe there's someone you want me to interview or have on as a guest host. Send me a message. Let me know. The email for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.